if I apply myself enough, I could figure it out and I can make it happen. Know your receipts. It's never forgetting my North Star. I am driven by my belief that we are capable of more, that we can do more, be more, and be better than anyone believes, and certainly better than we believe. I'm not lucky. You know what I am? I'm smart. I'm talented. I take advantage of the opportunities that come my way, and I work really, really hard. Don't call me lucky. Call me badass. Am I good enough? Yes, I am. The mantra became my motto for the first years I was first lady, and has been ever since. Those are three quotes that I often return to from inspiration, from people I deeply admire. Michelle Obama, Shonda Rhimes, and Stacey Abrams in reverse order. And as I reflect on the combined power behind these words and the women who uttered them, both the energy and motivation that they represent, but the understanding is that as they walk into a room, there will often be a sense of being constantly questioned, that people will ask them again and again to prove why they deserve to be here, and that they're going to need to look within, not without, as we all must eventually learn to do, to get the respect they deserve. This is a common human challenge, but the truth is they know that they'll be receiving a lot more opposition on that journey than most. These are deeply inspirational Black women. And as I reflected on my conversation with our guest today, Jasmine Shells, the connection between them and her is immediately evident. Jasmine is the co-founder and CEO of Five to Nine, a groundbreaking event management and evaluation software platform that is tailored for leaders. This platform eases the administrative burdens associated with hosting events, ensuring that there's seamless execution. But perhaps even more vital is that they provide leaders with real-time data on engagement and impact insights they can carry to the decision-making table. Now, five to nine serves companies like Expedia, Amplitude, and Masterclass. She's Forbes 30 under 30 for enterprise technology. She's a Google Startups recipient and a U.S. Department of State fellow, guiding entrepreneurial investments in emerging markets. She went to the University of Notre Dame for her undergrad, and she earned her MBA at Booth where she was christened an entrepreneurial scholar. And perhaps most impressively, Jasmine is among one of 70 black women who have ever raised more than a million dollars in venture capital. Yes, you heard that right, seven zero in the history of the United States. Her journey, though formidable, is marked not just by her skill, but by her unfaltering resolve, infectious humor, and a commitment to paving paths for those who follow. As you're gonna hear in our interview, her success isn't just a personal triumph. It's a bridge she's built to make other people's journeys smoother. Our conversation today is going to delve into an array of topics. We'll explore startup fundraising and the intersection of DNI. We'll delve into the realm of personal growth and talk about the importance of keeping your company's mission aligned. Jasmine will reveal how real solutions for real customers trounce fleeting trends. We'll also unpack the challenges of navigating divergent ideas and address the unique obstacles faced by underrepresented individuals in the tech industry. It's a deep conversation. I'm excited to invite you into it. Without much further ado, here's my conversation with Jasmine. I 
I would love it if you could share with us the Genesis story of five to nine. And in particular, I'm curious about your experience and perspective as a Black woman in tech and how that shaped your vision for the company. I worked in corporate America. So I always tell people that corporate America is my ex, right? You know, <laughs> we stay together. So when I was there about a decade ago, I was an IT consultant. So that was mm-hmm. my first job. But my second job, which I think that was even more fulfilling and amazing in the role that I had at the firm was an ERG leader. So mm. an ERG leader, um, leader of employee resource group, these groups are typically identity-based. So mm-hmm. I led the Black Professional Network at Ernst & Young Chicago, which had over 3,000 employees in that office. In leading the Black Professional Network as the communications chair, I kind of saw how hard it was to, one, manage all of the events we had for our programming, right? Managing them, communicating them to potential employees who be excited about these event and opportunities, let alone getting any data back um, to my boss, who was like, what is this <laughs> other stuff that you're working on that yeah. you know, I don't understand? So so that's where the idea is to kind of build this tool that consolidated all that to one place instead of using email and spreadsheets and Google Docs and SurveyMonkey, right? It really started out of my own personal pain point. How does one go from like, hey, there's a problem and I wish there was a solution to it to I see a market need and I think I'm going to be the one to solve it? A lot of times people talk about if entrepreneurs are born or if they're made. Yeah. I actually believe that exposure is key. So my father's an entrepreneur. While my dad make the transition from corporate America, which is also his ex, <laughs> to being a full-time founder. He has his own small payroll tax and accounting company in Ohio. But mm-hmm. I got close and personal. How great is it? Dad gets to come to all my games. Dad gets to drive me to school. But dad also built his own opportunity, his own business. So it's Mm. really from being exposed in my teens to seeing that as a actual opportunity in a career. But I always had been creative and took a lot of initiative. Being an entrepreneur is a very, very taxing job, right? It's it's all consuming in the fact that like the work doesn't really leave you, quote unquote, at the end of the day. But you know, the other side of it, which I think think you're mentioning when you mention the experience with your dad is it also is a ton of autonomy over your time and where you choose to spend it and why. I'm curious if, you know, as you enter the world of entrepreneurship and you interact with other founders, does having a father who kind of seemed to find that balance in a way that if I'm honest, and I work with a lot of founders, not too many do affect how you've chosen to think about your work life balance, whatever that means? Yeah, whatever that means. I think that's the best way to put it to me, to be honest. Yeah. seen a ebb and flow in the work in a sense mm. of like fundraising season is always mm. just insanity. There's no other words to put on it. It's very hard to find any balance in a fundraising season whatsoever. That's why you have to really come to understand, all right, I know I can't do everything great. So what are one or two things I could focus on and be great at? So today, you know, I'm going to be a great founder and I'm going to be, you know, a great daughter or today I'm going to be a great founder and I'm going to be great to myself and I'm going to go to the gym or hey, today I'm going to be a great founder for people maybe who have partners or kids or significant others. A mentor of mine at Chicago Booth, she's you no know, mm. companies, had them acquired, all that. And she said, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. So mm. each wake up, there's going mm. to be a off that you make. So I've just come to become a lot more comfortable and to lean more into the trade-offs and know that it's not that I can't be all those things. It's just mm. that hey, I'm not going to be able to do all those things. First of all, I love that phrase. You can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And then specifically mentioned 
mentioned the craziness that is fundraising um, season. And I think that has always been true, but we're in a particularly difficult season for fundraising in the, the venture marketplace. This is true for everyone. It is, and the data shows, particularly challenging for founders from underrepresented groups. I'm wondering if you can share some insights from your own fundraising journey, right? And kind of get into some specifics and potentially tips and tricks for for those who are listening. How did you manage to secure funding for five to nine in this competitive landscape? Absolutely. I think one timing is really important. So Mm. right when we went to fundraise, it's understanding your runway, it's understanding the market, it's understanding your milestones. We have projected out, we were looking at our growth and we were like, okay, we're growing steadily. You know, we're getting the logos we need, even though we're a little shy of the ARR we want, we believe that by the time, you know, we get probably to like the midpoint of our round, not even like maybe 25% into it, we'll be there. That it's time to start now. So I always say start with, you know, lovers and friends, right? Like, you know, current investors hit up, you know, your the, the people who have supported you, right? Yeah. All the way and really test your pitch and your deck with them first because one, they've already supported you. So they're going to continue to love on your business. They're going to continue to care for your business and they might come in for more. And that was the case that we saw with our investors, which helped us to fine tune our pitch. And yeah. then already had some money committed and then we had hit our ARR goal and we had all the logos that we wanted to. So when we went out to secure funding from investors who did not know us as well or weren't super familiar with us from, you know, our last round, it was just much easier. So build momentum and figure out ways to leverage both your projections in addition to your network to, you know, navigate through a fundraising environment. I do think that in the frenzy of fundraising, we often forget to do what we know. Some of like the simple things like, hey, that that I heard mentioned in there. One, don't just start at crunch time. (laughs) Make sure that you have leeway and time to pull it through. Two, start where it's easy and expect to be refining. I mean, I think on the flip side, I'm actually curious from you. Are there any things you've seen potentially from peers who are not as successful that are kind of lessons learned that we could share, kind of common pitfalls in the fundraising journey, either that you've seen in peers or in yourself that you're like, oh man, if I could warn people not to do these one or two things that I keep seeing, I would do that. One of the pitfalls is not updating your current investors as often as possible Mm. about that. You know, some founders, they'll want to shy away from saying the the bad news. (laughs) At the end of the day, your investors understand this is a marriage. Mm. When you're an investor, you just brought on a partner for life or for the life of the company, right? And typically, Mm. the founder, they're aiming for an acquisition. It's going to take them seven to 10 years to get there, typically. Mm. That's Mm. the average. So you have to be comfortable with sharing the bad things just as much as you are sharing the good things because that creates trust and people want to work with and invest in people they can trust. And then the second thing is I'm finding definitely in this current market, there's this attachment to the valuations of yesteryear. So yesterday, mm. like a year ago, yesteryear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, the market was just different than it is now. So it's yeah. kind of adjusting those expectations. But yeah. still before the you're negotiating in a way that's most favorable to you, your team members, and your current investors who are, who are on board. The other pitfall is people don't understand their moment. They don't mm. understand the timing and they're not reading the room. So mm. sure that mm. you're reading the broad room in the ecosystem. So when you step into that Zoom call or you step into that meeting, that you can get the outcome that's best for you, that shows them that you're aware of the mood. A huge amount of valuation is driven by what is happening in the market, not just what is happening 
for you. And that play that it makes on timing, on when you do it, on how you do it is so important. I think it also brings some humility because oftentimes I think in yesteryear, when we'd hear these huge evaluations, I don't think we always appreciated how much we were seeing a reflection of what was happening in the market and perhaps a potential bubble as much as the value that was being created. Um, oh, blessing. Yeah. I, I have some. Now I'm getting on my soapbox. You got me on my yeah. soapbox. Please, please go Don't for it. push me off at any point in time, okay. but I'm on my soapbox right now. Do not, and I repeat, do not think that chasing Twitter hype, or maybe I should call it X. I don't know mm. what Elon's doing over there. Yeah. But I think that chasing tech Twitter hype is going to save your company. When it was all about NFTs, and then it was about crypto, and then it's AI, but mm. then people have AI with no defensibility. Mm. They have AI with no way to really defend themselves in the market. They have AI with no real AI developers. Don't think that just because you add something into your product that's hot, that will get investors excited, that one, that that means that you're going to close around off that, or two, that that means that you're going to be able to make money off of that. Because mm-hmm. there's some mm-hmm. other factors. So I think tech Twitter hype mm-hmm. is great and all, mm-hmm. but you not chase tech Twitter hype in efforts to raise around or save your business or whatever you think you're trying to do. You really have to know what your, your mission is and what your North Star is and stick true to that and what you're learning from your customers. Because if mm. you chase Twitter hype, you'll be dead in the water. That's my soapbox and I'm done. I just want to let that sit because I can't tell you how true that is. You mentioned implicitly, I think one of the hardest things about being a funder is that you basically need to sell to two different groups, the Mm -hmm. investor market and your market of customers, right? The actual market. And sometimes those are aligned and sometimes they're not. In particular, I think your investors are always trying to guess what is going to be the next big thing. Your customers are ultimately always going to be solving problems. And one of the things that I keep getting to with Buzz that is a warning sign for me is when a company can clearly articulate how they are going after the next big buzzword and can't clearly articulate the problem that they are going to be solving for a real customer on the ground. And I can't tell you, as you were talking about the difference of like following the buzzword, I think we we saw it with crypto. We saw it with you know NFTs. And I think I'm seeing a ton of it with AI right now. And you called out the other thing. It doesn't just need to be a problem that you can solve, but is it is your solution defensible? But you just so beautifully called out, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's It's not just getting the money in the bank. It's how you're going to make money. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have the clear answer to that question, well, you know, you're dead in the water. Uh, Apologies. Apparently you got me on on your soapbox as well. We're both on it. No, I'll make back down. We can both be on the soapbox. It's okay. You're a successful Black woman CEO in tech. And so you're in a unique position to observe the influence of DEI in the tech sector and corporate America overall, right? Because you mentioned kind of some of the genesis for inspiration here was actually leading an ERG for Black professionals back in Ernst & Young. I'm just really curious, kind of having had that DEI lens right from the beginning, if you can share some of your observations and experiences with DEI in the tech sector, and in particular as it pertains to the experiences of Black women, And I know that's broad. Just take us with whatever comes to you. 
So now you're asking me the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yes, there we go. In particular, for Black women, you know, less just Black founders in general receive less than two percent of VC funding each year. So mm. we're already at a decline. And I, I know when um we raised our pre-seed right round, mm. there made mm-hmm. in 2018. There have been perhaps about according to Project Diane, 34 Black women who had raised over a million dollars. And then when it came to 2020, that number had raised to 93. So mm. It's crazy when you look in a room full of people, you know, and mm. think, wow, you know, this is a small, intimate room. And this is the same amount of Black women who've ever raised over a million dollars. So yeah. just when you start looking at the numbers, it's actually less than 0.0006% of Black women have raised over a million dollars. So mm. we are at a, a deficit, even though we're making creating businesses at one of the fastest rates of any other demographic cohort. Mm-hmm. So my experience as a Black woman has been one of which, you know, yes, we've raised almost $6 million to date. However, it was by luck, which is part opportunity and part preparation. It was mm. a port network and it was a lot of hard work and resiliency. And I think that's another thing that as a Black woman founder, you know, you really got to lead into is some resiliency because I remember investors even, you know, there was this investor in in Brooklyn who I went to meet with for a pitch meeting. This is when we raised our pre-seed. I have 40% committed into our one and a half million round and I'm pitching him, talking through our attraction and and our whole pitch meeting, he just interrupted me throughout. Like, you said it like this, but you should say it like this. You said it like this, (laughs) say it like this. And I'm like, dang, like, I can't get one word out. Yeah. I'm thinking this isn't super productive. So I'll just say, I say, you know what? Just thank you for the feedback. I'm new to this whole thing thing and pitching. So I really appreciate it. And he goes, well, thank you for being vulnerable too. I really don't hear many women pitch, let alone black women pitch. So this is new for me too. (laughs) So then I realized the problem wasn't me. It's (laughs) you. Amen to that. This is not a me problem. This is a you problem. And then I went to his court codes and he's only invested in white men. Then you start to see how the statistics that I was naming earlier play out in real life. And this mm. is how these decisions are ma- being made because pattern matching is being leveraged where he's looking to see himself in me. But I'm me. Yeah. I'm not. He's mm. looking to see another white male across the table and I'm anything but that. People don't understand their own cognitive biases. They're missing out on a whole other opportunity of businesses that are being created by people who see gaps that they will never see. That last piece that you pointed out, I think is what makes, I think, at least the most savvy investors are really rethinking how they think about investment and how they don't miss on the five to nines in the world. Because the beauty of pattern recognition is, hey, you've been successful, you know, you'll get it. I just love what you just said, but you're going to miss out on the people who will see the gaps that you've been missing. Absolutely. When you start seeing that over 90% of the funding goes to white men, another 10% is shared amongst everybody else, women, POC, yeah. like, et cetera, et cetera, then that's where really starts to show the disparity and the opportunity because it's like it just it's basic math that like how many other five to nines calendars etc are we missing out on simply because nobody is giving those people the opportunity and if you can get really specific about going after that i think you're bound to win i'm i'm working with a, a new fund that's coming out it's not closed yet very specifically going after black founders with this exact premise we see the opportunity you're talking about and we say, hey, just using the basic simple rules, that is going to be a part of the ocean that's been underfished, so to speak. And so there's just more gems there um, that we're hoping to be able to get to first by specifically focusing on that part of the ocean, so to speak. But 
Despite the fact that there is so much difficulty, despite the very real stats that are not in your favor, you and five to nine are undoubtedly one of the winners. And, and that's true about five to nine, but that's true about you as an individual, right? And as I put it elsewhere, when we were talking, it's like, you've got the receipts with a capital R, right? You were, you won Forbes 30 under 30. You've raised um, a ton of money. You guys are kind of going to the moon and beyond. In a world in which there is so much lack of recognition for founders in general, but particularly founders from your background, how did you navigate the path to such esteemed recognition, right? Were there any key turning points in your journey to not just being excellent, but to being known as excellent that you think others could leverage? When you're doing great work, there's a balance between you got to keep your head down and do the work, because if you don't put your head down and do the work, you can't get recognized because mm. what have you proven? What have you done? Some people are just all about the spotlight, but they're not about the execution, right? Mm. There was a point in time where I was doing it every day by myself, tears, sad, failing over and over again. And then it got to a point to where I got a yes. Mm. And then I got another yes. And then I got another yes. And then I got so many yeses that I started to become known because it was like, wow, as of 2020, Chicago only had, according to Chicago Inno, nine Black-led startups that had ever raised more than a million in funding. Even yeah. though Black people comprise more than 30% percent of Chicago's population. So yes, mm. start to bubble up as one of the few. And then when you look at of those nine at that time, how many were women, even that whittles it down more. Yeah. So that's how I think Five Sign and myself have come to become recognized in a sense is because we're one of few yeah. in Chicago that have actually accomplished to that level of what we've done so far. And there's much more room to go. We have so much further that we want to go and to take the company, but there's not many that have taken it to this point. One, it's about doing the good work. Work, but it's also a reflection of how few have got the opportunity up until this point. Even though you are still very much along the journey, you are already thinking about how to bring others along. I know at least from reading your, your bio, if I did it right, you do some work teaching entrepreneurship in emerging markets. I'm curious, how do you think about giving back, building up the next generation in your work right now? And how, if at all, do those experiences feed into your work? For sure. There's a couple of committees that I'm on and a couple nonprofits I volunteer for. Um, one of the nonprofits I'm on the Chicago committee for is All Raise Chicago. Mm. And All Raise is, you know, backed by Melinda Gates. It's all about creating more women who are founders, directors, investors, and operators. It's really bringing more access to women who are more than worthy of these opportunities. So I think I really love to lend my voice as a Black woman founder in a space where there's not a lot of us in Chicago and the Midwest in particular, because I think that perspective has to be there. One of the ways that I think in one of my life missions is to create more Black women founders. So mm. I think the way that I do that is saying, hey, when I was going through this process seven years ago, eight years ago, this was missing. And these are the gaps that I saw. And this is how we keep more Black Black women in Chicago. And this is how we get more Black women funded. I, I love that. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious if there's any transferable experiences kind of from the work that you've done outside on these boards and advisory committees that you then are able to apply back to your role as CEO. How, for example, is being part of All Raise and connecting with that network of really incredible women doing more shifted how you think about your role as a leader of your startup? Well, I think what's great about being in that type of community, I really believe that iron sharpens iron, right? Mm. So in the sense of, hey, I'm sitting with another female founder who's raised her A and I want to raise my A next. Mm. Now we're talking 
talking about it. I'm sitting with a table of women who are executives, you know, bosses in their own right. And I can say, hey, you know, this is how I'm looking to scale my team. Hey, this is how I'm looking to manage my team. Hey, how do I level up my CEO presence? Get an executive coach, right? These Mm -hmm. are the roles you're starting to be in where you're getting very tactical experience and advice from like-minded folks. And another Mm -hmm. thing, opportunities, some of these whisper networks that, you know, women in particular are trying to get more access to from the VC side. So that was something Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about as a founder. Since um, All Raise, you know, works with investors, founders and the like was, you know, women on the VC side are trying to get more access to these whisper networks, which Mm -hmm. a lot of times are these boys clubs. You can get more women on cap tables, right? A financial outcome. They can invest in more women and create more women founders, right? Because a part of the reason is we don't have enough women VCs who have the power to Mm. invest for women founders. So that's the the ecosystem right there. And I can say, even for myself, I know I want to invest in companies when I get the opportunity to. So it's just really great to, you know, learn all these things in an environment where I would have to learn from Twitter hype. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or this community of, of women that I get to sit and talk with and, and share with. On that note, certainly my experience, both when I was a founder and then moving on to an investor, was not just learning, kind of being able to seek out and access to the networks to get advice, but also being able to then have the right filters to understand what advice was applicable to me and what advice wasn't. Because I found that not everybody's story would have all the right pieces for me. It was my job to pull that together. I'm curious whether you've run into that as well or how you think about kind of from the broad range of experiences and networks you have access to, do you ever have situations where people are giving you completely opposing ideas or, you know, where an idea is really just, here's what I did, kind of do the same thing. And you're like, we're in very different modes. And if so, how do you think about testing that and applying that and making it your own? Different ideas all the time, all the time. I'm like, mm. you'll have one call, someone will tell you to go to, to the moon. Yeah. Have another, someone will tell you, no, go towards the sun. It, it'll yeah. be today, literally. Yeah. What I've learned is ideas are great, but also I have an intuition and a gut for a reason. Mm. I put in this position, I started this company for a reason mm. and I don't take that lightly. So anytime where I'm getting opposing advice, I have to think like, well, what do I think? What do I think? is going to move us in a direction that is aligned with the mission that I have for this company and, and where I want to go. So you always have to, what I learned is bring it back to your North Star because mm. it can be very, very easy to chase after someone else's ideas, opinions, or dreams. But at the end of the day, I have to execute on it. Mm. My team has to execute on it. So it's never forgetting my North Star. And if you feel comfortable, I'm curious if there's an example that you're able to share of a particularly challenging decision as a CEO that you needed to navigate and in particular where your North Star ended up being a guide that worked out for you. What was the North Star? What was the decision? And yeah, just what comes to mind when you think about that? For sure. I think one of them that was pretty big was for us, when we were focused, when we first launched, we end up um, having a more broad approach to how we thought about who we sold to. Mm -hmm. But then we decided to kind of niche ourselves. And this is when we did our pre-seed in and I, and we got a mm-hmm. lot of 
feedback that was like, DNI, no, it's bad, and all these things. And, you mm. know, there's budget, et cetera. What was interesting about us making that approach or taking that approach was this was right before everything um, happened with George Floyd, which, you know, there was just a huge wave of, you know, civil unrest and companies asking how they can do more. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it was at that time we like 10x in revenue and, you yeah. know, really, um, and that it pushed us to, to raise our seed. But I think it's one following your gut, your North, your North Star. What do you care about? What are you passionate about? But then also knowing that you know your customers best and you know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So you just happen mm-hmm. to be ready for what was a huge shift. And I think what I even tell founders now is, you know, we're in the midst of another shift. Mm-hmm. So well, are you listening? What are you hearing? And how are you applying that to a way, like applying that in a way that can give you a competitive advantage? And, you know, I think you you call out so beautifully this inherent, almost paradox, you know, talk about advice that's telling you to go to the, go night and day <laughs> to the moon and the sun and almost this time at the same time. I feel like the best, when people ask me, do the best investors listen to themselves or listen to the market? And the answer is always yes. And it's this incredible dance between always being, like I think you just beautifully described, being sensitive enough to always listen to the market and yet sensitive enough, enough to always come back to who are we and what are we doing? And no one answer being complete. I'm just grateful that there were organizations that you that were listening. So at a time of need, they were ready. As you said, luck, luck being about preparation. I'm curious about a moment that you were, you mentioned resiliency really early on. I'm curious if you've had a time where, and don't need to share any details of, you know, that are too personal, but you've had a moment where you felt that resilience tested on the professional and the personal side or both and kind of how you navigated being true to yourself as a CEO, as a daughter and with all the other identities that you had and any advice that might give for for other leaders who are trying to figure out how to show up for their companies, but show up for themselves in the world at the same time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, resiliency is just super important. I remember in undergrad, I boxed. I was was on a women's boxing team. Ooh. Nice. Which is very interesting. And I'll never forget, I called my dad. My, my parents are so supportive of everything I do. So this is the one time where my dad had a gripe and he was like, wait, what? You want to get punched in the face on purpose? And I, I just like cracked up because I was like, dad, you know, I just really want to do this. But for me, I always wanted to take risk or chances on myself, bets on myself that mm. no matter what it was, if I had experience with it or not, that if I applied myself enough, I could figure it out and I can make it happen. That already is a perfect note of advice to end on. Bet on yourself. And I'm curious, though, if there's one piece of advice you'd like to leave for our listeners, particularly those who are aspiring to carve their own path, and in particular, those who feel underrepresented in whatever sense of the word that is, whether that representation is easily visible or not. Know your receipts, okay? Mm. Know your receipts. Mm. When you're Entering into a highly competitive environment, you're going to hear a ton of no's. Someone's going to make you think, maybe I'm not meant for this. Perhaps I should try something else. Maybe I'm not cut out for it. You'll have these doubts, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to remember everything that you've been through and that you've done to even get to the point to where you're receiving those no's. All the yeses that you got to even get you at the table to get the no's. And that's the thing that I had to recall is like, Jasmine, you always were top of your class. You always got good grades. You always tried new things. You literally sold Beanie Babies when you were a kid. You've been, yeah. you want to be an entrepreneur your whole life. And you tried some of the most gutsy things because you're not afraid to take calculated risk. So mm. why would 
wouldn't you be cut out for this? Why? If not you, then who? So I had to remember my receipts of who I am and how I'm wired and what success I've had to this point. And that was the encouragement I needed to keep pushing. And I kept mm. pushing until those no's turned into maybes. And then some of those no's also turned into yeses. And some of those mm-hmm. no's say no's. Yeah. But understanding and, and knowing my receipts, that was the confidence that I needed to walk into that room to make mm. sure that the person across the table also understood this is the one person that you want to bet on. Know your receipts. Can't think of a stronger kind of close to our conversation than that. Just want to close by saying thank you so much for your time today, Jasmine. It was such a gift to me. Oh, thank you, Thomas. This was fun. Thanks for standing on my soapbox with me. I really appreciate (laughs) it. Welcome back to the Spoken Series, a recurring segment here at the Venture Visionaries podcast where we dive deep into the voices behind the scenes. Today, we're taking a slight detour. Instead of spotlighting someone from our featured company, Five to Nine, we're turning to a unique narrative from the world of DNI strategy, Konso Mbakide. Konso is an applied economist turned strategy consultant. She has left an indelible mark on Fortune 100 executive teams through her tenure at Bain & Company, a leading management consulting firm. Particularly in 2020, In the wake of George Floyd's tragic murder, she emerged at the forefront, spearheading a transformative approach to DNI that influenced not just Bain, but also helped shape corporate America's direction in aligning diversity initiatives with their core missions. Now, Konso is turning her gaze towards venture capital in Africa, channeling investment as a vehicle for equity. Full disclosure, she's also my younger sister. I recently sat down with her, aiming to understand how the innovative work of Five to Nine and trailblazers like Jasmine Shells integrate into the larger tapestry of DNI strategy, both locally and internationally. So let's dive into a spoken story with Konso. I know that you were very, very involved with Black at Bain, which is one of the ERGs at Bain. Could you tell me a story that just brings to life either why you were so excited to be involved in it or why you feel that it was so impactful for your career. We had a senior leader who was connected with the ERG as our champion. She was excellent. She was already considered a culture carrier outside of this role, but she gets things done and also got herself very quickly promoted after hiatus leaving Bain. She's kind of like the weird person who has the best of both worlds in consulting, but she was an incredible asset to me personally, but also to the ERG as a whole and and really helped us to get from like, you know, the five person, you know, social club to the Black and Bean group that I left when I went to business school. All of those people were incredibly supportive in getting me through my summer, helping me to understand feedback and apply it, helping me to think through which office I should go to, um, for my full-time role once I had that as an option. I, I mean, I relied on them very, very critically and heavily. And they came through for me in ways that I couldn't even articulate at the time. And so when I came back, I, one, wanted to just pay that forward. And then, two, I found more Black people, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in that sense, there's also more work to be done in mm-hmm. sort of formalizing some of that support. Because you don't want people to fall through the cracks or only the mm-hmm. one or two that think to meet everyone one on one in their mm-hmm. first two weeks yeah. to to get all of the attention. And so a couple of those things sort of influenced my my desire to mm. support Black Bean. I think it was also the only place where I felt very 
comfortable mm. um, while I'd been, especially at the beginning. I think uh, after a few years, I felt a little bit more ownership of the rest of, of my being experience. But uh, that was the first place that I felt any sense of belonging at the, at the company. One thing that's true about ERGs is their kind of role in the company varies widely from organization to organization, all the way from being seen as really nice social clubs, um, maybe means once in a while in some, and all the way to really strategic drivers of corporate initiatives in the other. Where do you think it fell at bay and why? It ranged from office to office. It always started off as the former, but certainly in the San Francisco office where I was based by the time I was leaving, it was very much the latter. And across at least our North America offices, that became more true because during 2020, post-George Floyd, ERGs were a really helpful way for being to feel like they could accelerate their thinking or their work on this. That mm. instead of starting from scratch, they could be like, what's been happening? Can we formalize that? Can we give it more attention? Can we use that to propel ourselves further? So I think in all cases, ERGs became more strategic. Top three things that a CEO needs to understand about DEI. Don't do it yourself. Make sure it's a top three priority. Make sure your chief DI officer is in the room at all times. What is something about ERGs that most people who don't participate in them? They are not just a place to feel welcome, but they're a place to give you the strength to do the job you need to do to also get promoted. Favorite memory from your own participation in an ERG? We went... We like me went to like a graffiti making class with the West Coast Black and Bean group, and we created a piece that says here, and it's uh, in the center of the office. What was the first moment that you realized that your experience in business might be different from people in the majority? I think it was obvious before day one when they sent a slide with what does business casual mean? And I had an outstanding question about what it means for my hair and the slide did not answer that question. Very real, very real. 10 years from now, is the goal for ERGs to be unnecessary or for ERGs to be supercharged relative to what they are today? I would say supercharged because I don't believe in colorblindness, like your identity matters and it's good. I hope that the work is more embedded in the in your day-to-day -day work so that it doesn't feel so extra and so outside of business as usual. And that's it for this week, folks. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. And remember, the meaning we get out of our work is directly proportional to the meaning we're willing to put in. I hope you have a wonderful week. As always, I'm Thomas. See ya.